And how, what is the what is the, like the tool here that we could use from stoicism? Well, is the stoics strike deeper? Like if someone's frightened of dying, a cognitive therapist might help them to reevaluate the the probability and to maybe see if they're underestimating their ability to cope with the situation. A stoic would go much further and get them to reevaluate the fear of death itself. Maybe death itself isn't as frightening as people think. You know, maybe what's more important, maybe, buddy, you should be more worried about the way that you're living rather than the fact that you're one day going to die. You have to kind of come to terms with your mortality and take more responsibility for the way that you use the time that's available to you. Welcome to another episode of my podcast and thank you for joining. I am Inga Land. This podcast is all about improving your well-being, brain, mental health and longevity. I appreciate your time and aim to pack these episodes with the latest in science and actionable tools for everyday wellness with my expert guests. Stay updated on new episodes by subscribing on YouTube, Spotify and Apple Podcasts or join my newsletters at ingoland.co slash newsletter. I'm very much looking forward for this discussion, how you integrate stoicism with um, modern cognitive behavioral therapy is super interesting and I think super relevant for today. Uh, today's, let's say, a hectic modern society and um, of course the just the efficacy of the practices in cognitive behavioral therapy has been shown to be quite applicable to many modern day problems and issues that we are facing. So I would like to learn today about stoicism and I think um, the link, yeah, of course, the link between modern day psychotherapy and I think many people like have heard about stoicism for sure, but are not perhaps quite familiar on what it is exactly and how we can apply to our lives, perhaps some some of the issues or problems or obstacles we are facing with. And first, um, I would like to learn of how you came into finding stoicism and yeah, a little bit about your, your background in general. Well, let's see, I started off studying philosophy um, when I was a young guy, when I was a teenager, um, pretty young, I started to read lots of books about religion and philosophy. And it was actually by reading books about Christianity and Christian mysticism and Gnostic and apocryphal Christianity I realized that a lot of those books referred to Neoplatonism. Um, funnily enough, like early Christian scriptures had quite a lot of Neoplatonism, uh, the philosophy influencing them. And I got more into philosophy and I read Plato and I went to university and studied philosophy. And I wanted to combine uh, three interests. I wanted to do something to help people. So I wanted to do some kind of therapy or counseling. I was reading Freud and Jung and all those guys. I wanted to understand life. So I was reading about philosophy and uh, I wanted to work on myself. So I was doing a lot of meditation and self-hypnosis and reading self-help books and stuff. And by the time I finished my degree at Aberdeen in Scotland, um, I felt like I was reading lots and lots of books and I was kind of like juggling these different things. And uh, it was great, but I felt really confused and kind of overwhelmed. And then I kind of stumbled across, I read a book on Neoplatonism by a guy called Pierre Hadot. And I thought, this is really good. Uh, so I read his other books and his other books talk more about stoicism. 
Now, Stoicism is the only major school of ancient philosophy that isn't normally covered on a philosophy undergraduate curriculum. Because when I asked academics about it, they would say, well, the Stoics just take concepts from Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, and they figure out the practical application of them to daily life. So why would anybody want to study that? They said to me, which seemed surprising to me because I thought that would be precisely why everyone should be studying it. Um, and so I read the Stoics for the first time. Uh, I'd studied Plato and Aristotle at university, but I'd never read the Stoics. And it was like uh, an epiphany to me. Uh, it was like a, a light went on because I realized the Stoics books uh, were full of self-help techniques, meditation type, contemplation techniques. And I realized around the same time that Stoicism was the inspiration for modern cognitive behavioral therapy. And so it brought together these three different subjects that I was interesting, crystallized in one thing. And I remember thinking to myself, I was very relieved because I thought now I can just read books by Seneca and I don't need to read all these, these hundreds of different books by Heidegger and Freud and everything like that because everything I want is in the Stoics. And that was about 25 years ago, roughly. And I'm still mainly reading the Stoics and writing about them today. So I had this transformation and it stayed with me for the rest of my life. Well, that's very interesting. And yeah, I do. I do agree that many, many philosophies um, what, what was your your main uh, subject? What did you study at the University of Aberdeen? Philosophy. Philosophy, yeah. Okay, so I actually went to study University of Aberdeen as well. And oh, wow. yeah, we found, found, found out about this during our email conversation that we have been at the same uh, university and I studied psychology there. And I was uh -huh. also surprised or maybe, maybe I was um, lacking the sort of... Um, mindfulness, stoicism, resilience, this kind of aspect of the studies, I wished there were more. Um, so I'm super excited that you, for example, have done this work to integrate these concepts and bring this into the discussion, into the table, like, hey, we can actually use these techniques that are pretty effective. Uh -huh. um, so then to go into this stoicism, like what is the what is it actually? How it, did it come into existence? And what are the sort of, you, you mentioned Seneca, what are the key people yeah. that were in, in creation of the philosophy sort of? What you're asking for is a potted history of Stoicism. So very quickly, we'll explain who were these guys? Like, and they were mainly guys. Actually, there were some women, but they were mainly guys. So Stoicism is a school of Greek philosophy that was founded in 301 BC not by, uh, at Athens, but not by an Athenian, by a Phoenician merchant, a guy from Cyprus who was shipwrecked there. And he was a dye trader, as many Phoenicians were at that time. And his name was Zeno of Citium. And he studied many different schools of philosophy. And then he tried to kind of integrate them. He came together with a kind of eclectic view of philosophy that he developed into a new system. And he called it the Stoic school. It's called the Stoic school because a stoa is like a shaded uh, porch, um, it's a colonnade. And so that's where Zeno lectured. So it was named after the place where the Stoics met. And the Stoic school flourished for a long time, uh, for about five centuries. It was a, a big deal <clears throat> in the ancient world. And most of the writings from the early Stoics are lost, apart from a few fragments. We have about a book full of fragments, roughly, from early Stoics. 
But we have more extensive writings from Stoics that lived in the under the Roman Empire towards the end of Stoicism. Um, so Stoicism was popular in Greece, but it also really caught on among the Romans and became an important philosophy in the Roman Republic and then later in the Roman Empire. And so the main uh, authors that people may have heard of are, uh, first of all, Seneca, uh, who we have many dialogues and essays or letters from. He was an advisor to the Emperor Nero, Seneca the Younger. Then Epictetus, who was a slave, who became one of the most important teachers of philosophy in Roman history. We have many transcripts of his lectures. And also a short book that we'll probably mention called the Enchiridion or the Handbook, which is like a, an introduction to the Stoicism. And it's like a summary of his teachings. And then we have the journal uh, called the Meditations of the Roman Emperor, Marcus Aurelius. And Marcus Aurelius was the Stoic about whom we know the most because he was the Roman Emperor. Uh, but he was also strangely the last famous Stoic of antiquity, he died in 180 AD. So that's a short history of Stoicism. And as a footnote to that, many people will have heard of Cicero as well. He's a very famous Roman orator and a Roman consul in the Republican period. And Cicero wasn't a Stoic, but he was very well educated in philosophy and he'd studied Stoicism at Athens and he wrote about it extensively. So Cicero is also one of our main sources for information uh, about Stoicism. And that, that's in a nutshell where it came from and who the Stoics were that people may have heard of. Mm, great. And these, these characters, these people had some key messages to deliver about how to, I don't know, think about, think about existence, life, goals, yeah. joy. So what, what were the, what, what are the main goals of Stoic philosophy? Well, you know, the first thing I'd say is this, the, the difference, well, sometimes, let's start by saying a little bit about what the difference between ancient philosophy and modern philosophy is. Ancient, yeah. in the ancient world, they didn't make the divisions that we make between philosophy and psychotherapy and other subjects. You know, mm -hmm. philosophers combined many different subjects together. Philosophy and psychology were the same subject. Like, they were just different things that philosophers would do all kind of mashed together. And by separating subjects, like division of labor, we, we get specialism more. And there are advantages to that, but there are also disadvantages to it. We would potentially lose sight of the overlap and the connections between these different disciplines. And so it meant that the Stoics were able to work more at the crossroads between anthropology, psychology, philosophy, linguistics, like how all these things actually mash together and complement one another. Um, and so philosophy was much more of a practical business to them. It was also indistinguishable from spiritual practices and self-help. Um, so what did they actually believe? Well, the Stoics believed, we can say in a, Epictetus actually says, look, you could tell people what the Stoics believe in one sentence, but then you'd have to kind of unpack it and explain what, what it means, what the terms mean that they're using. So the slogan of Stoicism is that the goal of life, the supreme goal of life is living in agreement with nature. Like, that's their slogan. That defines Stoicism. Marcus Aurelius, for example, never mentions being a Stoic, but he uses that slogan repeatedly throughout the meditations to describe his goals and describe his teachers and so on. And by living in agreement with nature, the Stoics basically, I'll paraphrase slightly, but what they basically mean is that the goal of life, like, the most important thing in life is that we fulfill our potential. And they think that our supreme potential as human beings 
is to live in a way that's governed by reason. They think that reason is our master faculty because we have instincts and drives, but reason is able to comment on those. I might have a strong urge to scratch an itch, but reason can tell me actually it'd be a bad idea to do that, a chicken pox or something like that. So reason intervenes and organizes like all of our other drives and instincts potentially. They say it's like a king, they call it the master faculty that oversees everything else that goes on in our lives. So the Stoics thought the goal of life is to use reason well. Simple as that. And they said, well, what would it be like if someone consistently used reason well, then they would achieve the virtue of wisdom. Like, very simple. And the Greek word philosophia, of course, means the love of wisdom. And the Stoics take that very literally. So when they talk about uh, being philosophers, they mean people in their daily lives cherish wisdom, pursue wisdom, and try and live in accord with it. Like they really like mean philosophy as someone that prizes achieving wisdom, achieving this enlightenment, as it were, um, a kind of rational enlightenment more than anything else. But to live consistently in accord with wisdom in our relations with other people, the Stoics believe would be to exhibit justice um, and fairness in our relationship. So it would be a social virtue as well. And then there's a problem because in order to live consistently with wisdom and justice, sometimes we get scared and that might kind of prevent us from acting in accord with wisdom. And sometimes we have strong urges and they might kind of drag us in another direction as well. Um, and so the Stoics said, you're gonna need self-mastery. You're gonna need self-discipline. You're going to need the virtues of moderation and courage in order to deal with fear and cravings and live consistently in accord with wisdom and justice. So Stoicism is an ethical worldview that places supreme value in our own character. And that has, so first of all, it's an ethical philosophy, so what we call virtue ethic, but that has a huge obvious consequence for psychology which is that the Stoics believe that the most important thing in life is our character and how we live, our actions, but the events that befall us are at best of secondary importance. Like, well, so what really matters is what we do, not so much what happens to us, right? It's all about our character. That means that if due to misfortune, some bad event befalls us, for the Stoics, that's less important than it would be to the majority of people. So poverty, exile, um, uh, being persecuted by other people. For Stoics, these are events that we have to show our character by dealing with, but the events themselves are not inherently catastrophic. What matters more is whether we deal with them badly or deal with them well. And even death itself, the ultimate catastrophe in the eyes of many people to Stoics is intrinsically a neutral event. Like they think you can have a good death or a bad death. And what matters is the way that you go to meet your death rather than the event itself. So it, it has a psychological consequence because a Stoic who really can live in accord with that virtue ethic would be psychologically resilient. Like they would be less perturbed, less freaked out by bad luck or misfortune that befalls them. You know, that really resembles a lot to me, a yogic philosophy. And I, so I have a background. I, I did yoga. I was actually wow. suffering from migraines. I was suffering from a lot of pain. I was, I had 
pain almost all the time. And well, I tried medicine, it didn't really work. So I was around 18, 19, I started working on then my mental resilience and just the, like the reduction of the suffering. And I used yogic philosophy. So they also have the, the personal moral values or per personal ethics in which you are trying to develop your character, but also moral values. And then these practices, breathing, meditation, contemplation, and that is supposed to basically make you realize that that um, yeah, internal events, uh, the, the more important thing is that, uh, or external, is how you interpret them than what, what is actually the event. So that's why I found, obviously, a lot of clicks and similarities between these two schools of philosophy. And maybe they come, from, uh, to some extent, from some similar ancient texts then. There may be connections. We don't know a lot about that, but the Greeks uh, had some contact with India. Uh, Alexander the Great uh, conquered the north of India and he took several philosophers with him who then came back uh, to Greece. One of them was a guy called Piero of Ellis, like, who founded a school of philosophy called Greek Scepticism. And some people believe that Greek Scepticism was influenced by early Indian philosophy, maybe yoga or precursor of Buddhism or early forms of Buddhism. Um, and also Greek philosophy may quite feasibly have influenced Indian philosophy as well. It may have gone both ways. And we hear about some other Greek philosophers going to India. There's a very kind of ambiguous hint, even that one of Marcus Aurelius's teachers may have met yogis. The Greek word for a yogi, although it's used very loosely, is um, gymnosophos, which literally just means naked wise man. Like, and this is the term that they would use for philosophers from India. And one of Marx Aurelius's tutors, we're told, had traveled through Africa and traveled very widely and also met Gymnosophoi, um, which may mean uh, that he'd, uh, on his travels, he'd encountered yogis or maybe even that he traveled to India. So they, they, it's quite possible that the Stoics had some kind of vague contact with Indian philosophy and vice versa. That's very interesting. Yeah. So I think the most known known quote from Epictetus is that it's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters. And that's sort of also a nice a summary of some key points or key message of that philosophy. How does this now all of this ideology relate to modern day psychotherapy and perhaps some of the modern day issues that we we are trying to solve with psychotherapy? Well, I can tell you that with a little bit of an anecdote or a story. Um, so I, after I, actually, I should say a little bit about my own background in that regard. Like after I studied philosophy, I went on and trained and became a counselor and a psychotherapist. And I, I mainly, I tried to practice different types of psychotherapy, but I mainly became a cognitive behavioral therapist and, uh, and also specialized to some extent in resilience training, which is a kind of a related subject. And we should clarify, many people don't really understand what psychologists mean by resilience exactly, but in the field of psychology, resilience typically refers to um, a psychological state that makes people less likely to experience trauma or problems in the future. So it's viewed as a preventative skills training so we all know that prevention is better than cure. Like resilience training is kind of like the preventative 
aspect of alternative to psychotherapy. When we do psychotherapy, we're, we're late on the scene. It's too late, like in a sense, because the client already has a problem. What would be even better is if we could train the client before they have a problem so that they're less likely to develop one in the future. And that's kind of what resilience training is about. And resilience training is separate from cognitive behavioral therapy, but it tends to be quite heavily influenced by it because we have a very large quality of uh, large volumes of good quality research on uh, on clients with diagnosable problems from the, the psychotherapy field. So that research is very valuable in constructing preventative approaches as well. But it's not the only uh, influence on resilience training. Um, so the, the kind of relationship uh, between these things, I'll tell you a little anecdote. When clients come into psychotherapy, they sit down in a room uh, with the psychotherapist and then they start talking. And they usually begin talking about the presenting problem, as we call it, like, this is why I'm here, I've got this problem. And then they talk a lot about it usually, maybe for an hour, maybe even two hours. And what they're often talking about is the impact of the problem. So they'll say, I'm depressed or I'm anxious. And then they'll say, it's really ruining my sleep. It's destroying my social life. It's affecting my marriage. It's making it hard for me to study at university. It's damaging my performance at work. And then they'll talk a lot about all the ways in which their life has become horrible and for how long their life has become horrible as a consequence of their anxiety or their depression or whatever. And without realizing it, they're doing um, something that's quite familiar in psychology. They're, they're listing a reason, they're giving a list of reasons or motivations to change their behavior without realizing it. So normally, if someone gives you a big, big, big list of reasons why they should stop doing something, they'll then go on and say, so now I'm gonna stop doing that. Like, I'm gonna quit. But clients in psychotherapy feel stuck. So they'll express stuckness in the session, as therapists sometimes put it. So they'll give a big long list and then they'll say, and I know it's awful and I know it's destroying my marriage and I know it's affecting me at work, but I can't help it. It's just the way I feel. Like, I just feel anxious, I just feel depressed, I can't help it. They'll say the stuckness, right? So I really, really, really want to change this. It's awful, but I can't help it. Like, you can't change your feelings, it's just how I feel. Now, Albert Ellis, who was the earliest pioneer of cognitive behavioral therapy, he was a New York psychotherapist, um, and he developed an approach called rational emotive behavior therapy. It's the main precursor or the first version of cognitive behavioral therapy. Ellis would lean forward and smile at the client at that point, and he'd say, yes, but it's not just how you feel, is it? It's also how you think. Because cognitive therapy is based on the cognitive model of emotion. And by cognitive, we mean having to do with thinking, beliefs, thoughts that contain information, and crucially, to a large extent, have propositional value, by which I mean that they are true or false. Like, so someone says, I can't help being depressed. It's just the way I feel. But what they don't realize is that the depression to a large extent might be maintained by negative beliefs or patterns of thinking, which might be false. So they might think nobody likes me, everybody hates me. Maybe that's not true, right? Um, maybe they think I'm useless at everything. Maybe that's not true. Like, so often the thoughts that cause anxiety or depression are distortions of reality. 
Um, there may be some truth in them, but often they're exaggerated. They're, they're, very, they're often overgeneralizations, for example, or they exaggerate the severity of things. So they're distorted, they're twisted thoughts that cause these unhealthy or pathological emotions, or at least that, that maintain them. And that's a huge insight. In most of the, I think the most fundamental thing to realize here is that the majority of people don't realize that. Most people don't assume that their emotions are largely shaped by their underlying beliefs and thoughts. Um, they just think, it's just how I feel. Like, and so once you realize that it's not just how you feel, it's also how you think, it's also what you believe, then you can start to question those beliefs and thoughts. It opens a toolbox of cognitive, th lots and lots of cognitive therapy techniques spring out. We can start questioning the evidence in a number of ways for these underlying beliefs. We can identify them. Yeah. So the click is like the click is like making the the client realize that they own the thought. It's it's yours. Yeah. It comes from you. You yeah, created it, that. It, you created it. And and also in addition to that, the 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 attitude that creates it might be false. It might be a it might be a mistake. Um, so I'll give you another example like a really concrete example. Sometimes people say, sometimes people who don't know anything about psychotherapy say that psychotherapy doesn't really make any progress. It's just like all made up or something like that. They don't realize how scientific uh, psychotherapy is today. And a good example, the best example, the most famous example of progress in psychotherapy is the treatment of panic attacks. So Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung and all these hugely famous psychotherapists had no idea how to treat panic attacks. And they probably made people with panic attacks worse in many cases. Like they had no idea how panic attacks functioned. Like they were analyzing people's dreams who had panic attacks. Like, uh, you know, it's like just a stab in the dark. They were trying to guess, they had no idea. And people used to think panic attacks were very difficult to treat. They thought they were maybe even a kind of some sort of biological problem because they're more common with women. They, they're two or three times more common among women. They, they seem to manifest more at certain ages. They seem to be to run in families. They responded to certain types of antidepressants and they didn't seem to respond to psychotherapy. So for a while, psychiatrists thought maybe this is more of a physical problem. It's often got to do with breathing. I mean, we don't know what's going on here. I, psychotherapy doesn't seem to work on it. Then in the mid 1980s or the early 80s, um, cognitive behavioral therapist, particularly um, a guy called David Clark in uh, Oxford in the UK, developed a protocol, a way, a CBT approach, a specific approach to treating panic attacks. And it went from zero to hero. It went from being untreatable to being one of the most treatable, sometimes with a 90% success rate in a matter of a few weeks. Like in wow. panic attacks is now seen as one of the most easily treatable problems. Uh, in, in the field of, of, of clinical practice and psychotherapy, even people, and today there are still critics of cognitive therapy, but even cognitive therapies critics today generally accept the, the treatment of panic attacks is a massive success story, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there are many things that we do to treat panic attacks, but one aspect of it is that many people who have panic attacks, and panic, panic I should explain is a particular type of anxiety. So people in, in ordinary English use the word panic very loosely 
like just to mean they're scared but in clinical practice we we mean quite a specific type of anxiety that escalates very very quickly and feels as if it's spiraling out of control um the many people not all but many of the people who have panic attacks are frightened that they're going to have a heart attack or a stroke and for that reason i was just all... about to say because when, when i was younger yeah. I had a couple of panic attacks related to my migraine pain. And I was like literally thinking that I'm having a stroke. It was so strong. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't think I was about to faint. And we rushed into an emergency. And yeah, uh -huh. turns out it I'm was dying. just... A yeah, that, that's how I like <laughs> felt. And yeah. yeah, it was a panic attack. And but you weren't was, dying? No, I was fine. I, and so that's a, it's a good example of the cognitive model, right? A simple example. And many people that have panic attacks end up going to hospital because they think they're dying. Like, it feels like you're dying and you don't know what's going on. So you think you're dying. Now, if you think you're dying, unless you happen to be Marcus Aurelius or something like that, or a Buddha, most people who think they're dying are going to freak out. Like, they're going to, especially if they're confused and they're in pain and discomfort, thinking that you're dying is going to make you 10 times more anxious. Like, and then as you get more anxious, your heart's going to beat even faster. You're going to feel even dizzier. Your breathing is going to become more labored. And now you're going to think even more like I'm dying. Like, but the cognitive model is that in a sense, panic attacks are caused in many cases, but not all, by misinterpreting the physical sensations of, in this case of anxiety. Um, so the, the pain or discomfort in your chest is really just caused by tightness in the muscles that are common when people feel anxious. It's not that you, your heart is failing or anything like that. Um, and your heart beating fast or skipping a beat is just the typical symptom of anxiety. It's harmless. Like it's not actually a heart attack happening. The disorientation is also just a common symptom of anxiety it's harmless it goes away when the anxiety goes away it doesn't mean that something's happening to you you know you're having a stroke or anything like that but people naturally misinterpret these feelings um and so when the co part of the cognitive treatment for panic attacks is is proving to people that they're not dying basically and when people get used to the sensations and they become convinced that they're harmless then usually the anxiety reduces and often the panic attacks can be largely or, or even completely uh, overcome. Um, but the, the cognitive model of anxiety is the belief that something catastrophic is about to happen and there's nothing that I can do to cope with it. And if somebody believes that, they're probably going to freak out. They're going to feel anxious, but they might be mistaken about that or they might be overstating the severity or overstating the probability or underestimating their ability to cope. And so it's their thinking that's causing all of these anxiety symptoms to appear. And if we can change the thinking by proving to someone that the sensations are natural and harmless and temporary, then usually that has a big impact on the anxiety itself. And panic attacks are kind of circular. It's almost fear of anxiety that causes more anxiety, so it spirals. That's probably why it escalates really quickly. But we can break that cycle if we can get people to realize, oh, you know, these symptoms are harmless. Like, it's not yeah. what I thought it was. Yeah, so basically you offered uh, this model of emotions in the book that f the first stage is 
is the event, something happens. Um, I think uh, that there was a boat metaphor, um, mm-hmm. the boat is sinking. Mm-hmm. And then the ne- next stage is the emotion, like you get anxious, you start panicking. And this is where a normal person would like initiate a behavior based on that panic, which is like jump off the boat and try to swim or whatever. And this second stage in which you make the the ex, uh, um, like a increase of this panic emotion is where stoicism comes in. And what stoics yeah. would think they would change that idea. And how, what is the what is the, like the tool here that we could use from stoicism? Well, the stoic tool stoicism is very similar in some regards to cognitive therapy, because they're both, because Stoicism influenced cognitive therapy. Like Ellis had read the Stoics and quotes them quite a lot. Um, And they both share this kind of similar cognitive model of anxiety. So that leads them to to similar conclusions about how to treat uh, anxiety and depression and other problems. But Stoicism's solutions are more radical and more wider. Uh, they're more philo- surprise, surprise. They're more philosophical than the solutions that we find in cognitive therapy. So philosophy is about your whole life, not just this one particular problem. And so the Stoics strike um, deeper. Uh, so I guess a cognitive therapy, uh, like a, a cognitive therapist, like if someone's frightened of dying, um, a cognitive therapist might help them to reevaluate the the probability that they're actually going die and what the and to maybe see if they're underestimating their ability to cope with the situation like and to avoid the, the threat of death a stoic would go much further and get them to reevaluate the fear of death itself so that's not something that we typically do as much in, in cognitive therapy but the stoics would go further and say maybe death itself isn't as frightening as people think you know maybe what's more important, maybe buddy, you should be more worried about the way that you're living rather than the fact that you're one day going to die. Um, what's more important is the use that you make of your life. You know, everybody dies eventually. Like, and so at some level you have to kind of come to terms with your mortality and take more responsibility for the way that you use the time that's available to you, for instance. But so I think we, we should go deeper and focus much more generally uh, on changing things. So they think that many of the things that people fear aren't as catastrophic as they assume, and that we should learn to view them in a more detached way. But they also do something that, that the Stoics do something that's kind of subtle, which actually by chance we also do in modern cognitive therapy. And it's so subtle we don't have a word for it. We have to use jargon to describe it. And the jargon that we use is cognitive distancing. So in ordinary English, this is not a concept that people typically use, um, but it's a concept that's very familiar in research and modern cognitive therapy. And so cognitive distancing is the ability um, to notice your own thoughts as they're happening. And so it's the difference between thinking, this is a catastrophe, and thinking, right now I notice I'm telling myself this is a catastrophe almost as if you're observing somebody else having the thought, like as if you step to one side and you notice that you're looking at the world from that perspective. So it requires a perspective shift. It requires a particular type of mindfulness or self-awareness 
to gain cognitive distance. It's also called verbal diffusion in behavioral psychology. It's a, a very similar concept. So it, it's a concept that pervades all of our thoughts. Like we can gain cognitive distance from any thoughts. And that means it's particularly important to resilience building, for example. But there's a large, a growing volume of research on how central this technique is to modern psychotherapy. And now it's, it, the interesting thing is that we have to use jargon to describe it because we don't have a word for it in English. It's a, a, a subtle concept, a, an unfamiliar concept to many people, but the Stoics knew about it. Like, and it's central to Stoicism as well. That's, to my mind, astounding. Like 2000, Freud had no concept of this. Jung had no concept of this. But 2,300 years ago, the Stoics had this concept. And it's actually, in a way, captured in the quote that you mentioned earlier, which says it's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about them. So somebody who's able to think that way as they're getting angry, it's not what you said that's making me angry, but rather my opinions about what you said. If I'm having that kind of commentary or I adopt that perspective as I'm getting angry, I've stepped outside my anger and now I'm watching how my anger is functioning. Aaron T. Beck, who is the other main pioneer of cognitive therapy, came a little bit after Ellis. Um, he used to do, he introduced the term cognitive distancing to psychotherapy. And in one of his first books, which was written in the early 1970s called Cognitive Therapy and the Emotional Disorders, he describes it using the following metaphor. He says, um, imagine you're wearing rose-tinted glasses and you're going around and you think, oh, that, that dog is pink and that house is pink. And that lady over there, she looks very pink because you've forgotten that you're looking through pink glass and you just think the world is pink. I, it just looks pink to you. So you just think that dog is pink. And then one day somebody knocks the glasses off your face and suddenly everything looks different. And you realize that dog isn't pink. That lady's not pink. That house isn't pink. It, and you look down and you see the pink lenses and you think it was the glasses that were pink. I was looking through them. So that's what I mean by fusion. I was fusing the pinkness with the objects. I thought it was the dog that was pink. It's the glass that was pink. But this is the illusion right? Because I look through the glass. Now, the glass here is a metaphor for my thinking. Right? If I say to myself, I lose my job and I go, I just lost my job. It's a disaster. It's a catastrophe. Right? I'm looking at it through catastrophic lenses. There are no catastrophes in nature. Like, there's just atoms moving around and things like that. Nature doesn't know what a catastrophe is. It's a value judgment. It comes, that comes from me. Like, the, I'm looking at the world through catastrophic lenses. But someone else, this guy over here, might be looking at the world through blue lenses or green lenses. He might look at me losing my job and think that's an opportunity for you. Yeah. Um, he might think, actually, it's bad, but it's not a catastrophe. Like, it's not as bad as you think. Like, I might have dark pink glasses and he's got light pink glasses. But even more than that, like, first of all, other people might look at the same situation and view it differently. Right? They might have uh, different lenses that they look at it through, but worse or better, depending on how you look at it. I, a year from now, might look back at it and not view it as a catastrophe anymore. So I might be looking at it pink, with pink glasses now. A year from now, I might be looking at it with blue glasses. Right? So even I myself 
might have multiple prospectors potentially on the same event at different points in time. I, having gone through a course of cognitive therapy, might end up looking at it through, and knowing that, that, that realization itself gives me cognitive distance. Beck said it's mm. like, instead of looking through the glasses, it's like you took the glasses off and looked at the glasses, right? You realize, or it's like you've now got the glasses on, but you realize it's the lenses that are pink, not the dog. Like, I, I get that's the separation, the distance that you're making, whereas most people fuse them together because they get so used to seeing it that way. So someone who worries a lot, just few, just thinks the world is threatening and dangerous and they don't realize that they're wearing worry glasses all the time and that other people see the same events, but without the worry glasses and that a year from now, they might not be wearing those glasses as well. It's arbitrary and subjective, you could say, and it could be changed. But that realization, that simple, one little tiny little insight um, we now realize is one of the most powerful mechanisms in therapy because the moment that you realize, you really realize and you, you, you see it happening, you're, the moment you can actually watch yourself doing it, it dilutes the emotional impact. So if I'm thinking this is a catastrophe, it's a disaster, that's very different from me thinking, I notice that I keep telling myself this is a catastrophe. Well, if I'm able to step to the side like that, it will weaken the emotional effect. So number one, the emotions are less intense, but number two, I also gain what we call cognitive flexibility. So it's easier for me now to solve problems like, because I can step between different perspectives. So my thinking is more versatile. Like, and that flexibility is, is also uh, contributes to resilience. It's not just about the feelings. It's also about now I'm much better at problem solving. Why? Because I, I'm not locked into this tunnel vision of only viewing it in a particular way, very narrowly. If I can see what I could see it as an opportunity, or I could see it as bad, but not overwhelming, then shifting between these perspectives makes me better at thinking up coping strategies, as well as making it less painful for me. So, you know, this, this almost sounds to me that like these skills should be trained before an anxiety or fear or panic emerges we should almost as in yeah yeah exactly <laughs> like i'm i'm surprised that the, we don't learn these in school to be honest oh my goodness this is a thing that many people have said throughout the ages i think that you know 2000 years ago one of your ancestors probably read a book on stoicism and they slammed it down on the desk and they said we should be teaching this to kids in school like it's throughout the ages whenever someone comes up with a good idea people always think why does nobody teach this to kids in school because we're too busy teaching them trigonometry and things like that and you know whatever it is what i don't know what kids like what do kids learn in school like it's it's surprising sometimes but they don't yeah. learn much about psychology then they don't mm -hmm. really learn much about they don't necessarily learn much about uh, basic philosophical methods like spotting fallacies like uh, critical thinking techniques that that would be generally quite useful mm. so yeah you're absolutely right there are many areas of psychology that are relatively primitive like there's a lot of progress that we still have to make but i think what a lot of people don't realize is there are aspects of psychology that are quite solid there are things that we know with a high level of reliability that we've known for well over half a century now um, that could easily be taught to kids. 
about we know a lot about how anxiety works for example we know less about depression um but we still know some you know really useful things that would be fairly easy to teach to children and that would make them resilient like definitely uh, it would help them cope better it, it, we don't have it's a bad sign when we don't even have a word for something so we cognitive distancing nobody knows what that is except psychologists you know uh, it's not a concept that most people have they have to kind of have it explained to them and be given examples um but if it was a familiar concept people would be much less overwhelmed by their emotions and it's just it's like a i can imagine there could be a, another civilization that speak a different language that have a word for cognitive distancing that everybody uses and i can imagine that civilization uh you know like the children and everybody would just naturally be much more in control of their emotions than we are we we it's like we make a really basic mistake in modern in modern english and in other modern languages we lack this key insight as a culture as a society we've forgotten this like several very very basic psychological insights like mm -hmm. and that makes us stupid and as a culture uh emotionally illiterate uh in a sense a hundred years from now maybe you know people will look back on us and think those guys didn't even understand how emotions worked they were just all running around freaking out all the time like it's like you know in the same way we look back at our ancestors and think they didn't understand how viruses worked saying geez you know like if, if only they understood had microscopes and they knew more about bacteria and they knew more about viruses like they'd be able to take very simple precautions in the future they'll think that about us in relation to emotions they'll think wow in the 21st century people had no idea how emotion worked like they were all getting angry at the television and like you know well, it seems so primitive. yeah and you could already argue <laughs> that like uh, stoics from ancient greek or or some buddhist philosophers or even jainic people from the ancient india are now looking in the future to us mm and how they still don't get it yeah <laughs> they maybe they don't they were, get these techniques they were ahead of us and i wonder if if marcus aurelius was alive today well first of all if plato were alive today without a shadow of doubt like plato would look around modern society and he would think about the allegory of the cave and in plato's allegory of the cave in the republic he said imagine there's a cave and people are chained so their heads are locked in position and they're just staring at a screen all day like with shadows moving about on it and they don't even understand what reality is like out in daylight outside the cave and so this was his allegory about how people could be trapped by like their opinions and not really you know be able to understand reality he said if someone goes out the cave and sees the real world in daylight and then they come back and they try to free people everyone would think they were crazy because they wouldn't even understand what they were talking about i think plato would look at us glued to our computer screens and he would think oh wow it actually happened like they are all just sitting staring at screens all day <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So i didn't think it was meant to be an allegory i didn't think it was actually going to happen Like, yeah. <laughs> but he, he would be surprised. He'd be like, "They are all just sitting in little rooms, staring at screens all day." That's literally the thing that I told them to be like. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So okay. So if we then think about what would be the key lessons that maybe Stoics or or you yourself 
would uh -huh. want people to understand like what kind of what would be the most beneficial techniques that you think everyone could benefit get benefit from these days in today's society well let's pick three of them so the first one is cognitive distancing and so we've mentioned already just understanding you know it's a concept but sometimes the concept is the technique so you know just grasping what's going on so there are several ways and and I'll, I'll very quickly i'll run through a short list of ways that we can actually do this in practice now not necessarily how the stoics did that but this is how we would do it today so first of all it's just getting the concept right but you can also practice saying to yourself if you're depressed you could say um, you could prefix a statement that says, I notice right now that I'm thinking or tell myself. So rather than going, nobody likes me, everybody hates me. If I see that I'm doing that, I could pause and go slowly. I notice right now that I keep telling myself nobody likes me. I notice right now that I'm saying to myself, everybody hates me. And by slowing it down and practicing kind of taking a step back and observing the thoughts and prefixing I notice right now that I'm saying that can forces me into this position of cognitive distance right that's one way of doing it another way of doing it um, would be Epictetus tells his students when they have a troubling thought to say to themselves you're just an impression and not at all the thing that you claim to represent so it'd be like taking the glasses off and going, you're just a pair of glasses and not at all the thing that you claim to represent. You're just pink lenses. Like, so saying to yourself, you're just a thought, like, and talking to the thought is another way of forcing yourself into this um, sideways perspective on it, if you like. So those are things you can do. And here's a really weird one, but maybe you'll, you'll I, I can't have a hunch that you might like this one. I actually, we talk a lot about cognitive therapy, but I've always been more inclined towards behavioral psychology as a therapist, right? So I like simple, practical kind of mechanical techniques. I like, you know, I like reflexes and things. There's a phenomenon that was discovered at the beginning of the 20th century by a psychologist called Titchener. And Titchener found that if you repeat a word or phrase many times, it starts to change the way it feels, like it starts to seem meaningless. So, only recently, we over about 15 years ago or so, psychologists discovered that you can use this in therapy. And so if somebody says to themselves, oh my God, I'm going to die. Um, if you repeat that phrase very quickly, and it seems now the optimum amount of time to do it is 45 seconds. There are laboratory studies in this, experimental studies. Um, we call this, the, we used to call it word repetition. So usually it has to be like a short, a couple of sentences, a short phrase. So you would say, oh my God, I'm going to die. 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 And it becomes hard to pronounce the words after 10 seconds. 45 seconds, it seems kind of almost quite grueling. Your lips start to feel like rubber. And the words then start to feel, for 90% of people, the words start to feel more detached. So it doesn't have the same kind of emotional impact. So then you can still have a conversation about it and you can still actually have the thought, but the thought doesn't really seem as evocative anymore, like, which could be very useful in, in therapy. You, you've uh, gained this kind of uh, detachment from it. So cognitive distancing is very important. Um, there's a technique we haven't discussed that modern scholars call the view from above that's common in stoicism. 
So I'll say a lot about in relation to psychology, um, the Stoics thought that we should try and broaden our perspective in space and time. And partly they did this for theological reasons, because they thought um, Zeus, they were pantheists, and they thought Zeus was like the mind of the universe, and the, the physical world was like his body. The universe was one vast living being called Zeus. And so they thought the goal of life in a way is to become like God. And to become like God, you, you'd have to kind of perceive the whole of space and time. And so they thought as a, a mortal, you can't do that, but you can try to imagine it, to expand your mind. And they thought that by doing that, you get closer to putting your, empathizing with God, putting yourself in the shoes of God. And they thought that this is, you know, in a sense, obviously, theologically, what we should all be trying to do. We should be trying to think our way into the mind of God um, who, who pictures things in, in vast terms. And the Stoics realize that when you do that, it tends to make you feel uh, more serene. Um, and it, it's fairly easy to do. So the, Marcus Aurelius talks about doing this every day. Many other Greek philosophers talk about doing it. Now, I'd say in relation to modern psychology, it's very interesting. Because um, one of the things we know is that when people become very angry or very anxious, they become very emotional. The psychologists are very uh, interested in the way we allocate attention. We can pay attention to two things at once. Right? Sometimes attention is narrow, sometimes it's broad, sometimes it's fixed, sometimes it's malleable. Um, when people become anxious, for instance, their attention becomes very narrow and very focused on perceived threat. Now that's useful to defend yourself Back in a long time ago, when you and I were both small furry animals, like hundreds of thousands of years ago, like millions of years ago, and we saw a predator on the horizon, it was useful to forget about everything else and focus like a laser beam on the perceived threat in the distance. But that's not as useful when you're sitting at home thinking about what's happening in politics or thinking about doing your tax returns and you're getting anxious. Why? So narrowing of attention can be unhelpful. Like the price we pay is that we ignore other information. We take things out of context. It leads to selective thinking if we're not careful. And the Stoics knew that. So they thought if we do the opposite and broaden our perspective, it reduces the intensity of our emotion and it allows us to see things more objectively within a wider context. Like we distort things when we narrow our attention down too much onto individual aspects, particularly upsetting aspects. So say you say, Don, so you called me a, a really horrible name. Um, you said, Donald, you're an idiot or something like that. Like people do on the internet every day. Like, and I might just focus on that, like narrow my attention down and just focus on that one thing that you just said and get really angry and upset about it, right? But suppose you said lots of nice things to me over the many years, like, um, and I've got, a broader perspective. So I said, well, you did say that one nasty thing, but you've also said lots of nice things, you've done very helpful things, and that you're kind and good person. Then my emotional response to you would be more balanced. Like, so narrowing attention could be quite unhealthy. The Stoics want us to train ourselves to do the opposite. And the other thing that they want us to do is modeling, as we call it in psychology. So they're very interested in this idea of imagining what a wise, enlightened person would do and say in different situations. So Stoics like to ask themselves, what would Epictetus do? What would Socrates do? 
what would the sage, the sophos, the enlightened person do in this situation? So again, this is a very useful way of developing our coping skills. If we, instead of struggling with situation, we pause and imagine what someone else might do in the same situation if they were wiser than we are, if they were more courageous than we are, if they were more patient than we are, how would they go about speaking to people, or tackling a situation differently? And then we can copy like, the behavior that we imagine them exhibiting. So for example, Marcus Aurelius in book one of the meditations, the first chapter, the entire chapter is him describing the qualities that he most admires in other people. It's a modeling exercise. Like he's thinking, what can I learn from these people? Like, what could I imitate that I see them doing well? But first of all, I have to, to do that. I have to spend a little bit of time studying role models. And people don't normally do that. They do it less today, I think, than they did in the past. But uh, mm -hmm. the Stoics thought we can benefit a lot by taking a little bit of time periodically to look at people that we admire and asking ourselves what it is specifically that we admire about them and then thinking of ways in which we could learn to emulate that in our own lives. It sounds like uh, something that would be uh, particularly special uh, or useful for a person who had a lot of like adverse childhood experiences, for example, where the role models were not necessarily the the most adaptive or the, the, the best role models. So then to study almost new role models through books and new ways of uh, behaving and you don't That's necessarily smart. yeah you're right yeah, we... well do you know who didn't have uh, a good role model as a child is marcus mm -hmm. aurelius his father oh, died okay. marcus aurelius his father died when uh, when marcus was about three years old um so i've i've written a biography about him in the morning i think perhaps one of the reasons that he put so much emphasis on modeling mainly men, although he also models his mother's qualities as well, um, is because he didn't have a father. Uh, his father died when he was very young. And, and so it's, it's an obvious thing to say that in, a, in one sense, Marcus is using Stoicism to compensate for the fact that he lacked uh, a parental role model. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. so. And he did he did list now the the role models in the book. It was called meditation. Yeah, he goes into a lot of detail, particularly the main one. There are 16 people that he describes. Um, and the main one is his adoptive father, who adopted him when he was uh, slightly older. He was, was about 15, uh, 16 years old uh, when he was adopted by a man called Antoninus Pius. And uh, Marcus goes into extraordinary length, uh, not just once, but about three times in the book. He keeps coming back repeatedly to, in great detail, describing the qualities that he most admires and the character of his adoptive father. So now he's kind of something that a, a small child might do naturally with, uh, with a parent. Marcus hasn't been able to do this until he's about 16. So now he, he's doing it much more consciously and much more systematically. Hmm, that's super interesting. Th there was also in this book, uh, you mentioned that Marcus Aurelius emphasized morning and evening meditation. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, can you tell a little bit about this? Um, I think many people are interested in meditation, but sort of wondering how to do it, why to do it, when to do it. What were the stoic ways of using meditation for self-realization and uh, yeah, improving the character? Well, I think there are many different ways that the Stoics use meditation. Um, I think many, a lot of people I find today think that many people today are only familiar with Buddhist or yogic meditation. And so, and maybe only one method that they've learned, like mindfulness of breathing is very common. So it's so common that I think for a surprising number of people, they think that's the only way to meditate. Actually, there are hundreds of, even in, in India, like in, in Buddhism, there are hundreds of different ways or techniques of meditation. Meditation can mean many different things. The first book I wrote on Stoicism, I listed 18 different psychological techniques that, the, that you can find in the Stoic books. There's a lot of them. Now, you asked about the morning and evening meditation, and that in itself uh, takes several forms. But the several Stoics, including Marcus Aurelius, talk about preparing themselves each morning. And they tend to be influenced. There's a little bit of a backstory. There was a much, much older philosophy called Pythagoreanism that the Stoics were influenced by. And there's a famous Pythagorean scripture that people can read today. It's only a couple of pages long. It's actually a poem called The Golden Verses of Pythagoras. And in that poem, it says that each morning you should prepare for the day ahead. And then there's another passage in it where it says, each evening, before you allow your eyes to close, you should review the events of the day three times and ask yourself three questions. And to paraphrase, you should ask yourself, what did you do well? What did you do badly? And what could you do differently next time? Like, and so, and then the next day when you got up, you would prepare for the day ahead on the basis of the review that you did the night before. So it's a, what we could call a learning cycle. Like it continues every day. Like, so prepare for the day ahead, live throughout the day, put that into practice, and then at the end, review your progress. And then the next morning, like rinse and repeat, you know, do the same thing each day. And that's in this, this poem, which was known across different branches of philosophy. Galen, Marcus's, Marcus Aurelius's court physician, uh, who, who we have many books from, wasn't a Stoic, but he was influenced by Stoicism. He says he would read this aloud to himself. He'd read the poem to himself twice a day like, because he thought it was so important. Epictetus and Seneca both quote it. So in the morning, um, Galen's kind of slightly more extended version is that you would basically uh, imagine like two paths and uh, in one of them, in the morning, you would imagine what would happen if today I am guided by anger or depression or anxiety. And then you would imagine what would happen if I was guided by reason and self-discipline and courage instead. And so this idea of a fork in the road is very useful um, because the idea is it starts off with a small difference but then those two paths get further and further and further apart. So you could say, well, like right now, it would be one small step. Like either I could just act on my anger or I could act with self-discipline and self-awareness and instead overcome my anger to take a step back from it. Right now, it's a small step. But then if I keep doing that, by the end of the day, it, these would be two completely different paths. They get further and further apart as the day goes on. Um, and that amplifies my motivation. Like once I can see what starts as a small thing ends up as a big difference, 
then I think it becomes much more important to go down the right-hand path, like the healthy, self-disciplined, self-aware, rational, philosophical path, rather than the pathological path. Like, don't go down the pathological path. And then at the end of the day, I would review, you know, what did I do well? So encourage my reinforce that. What did I do badly? Like, so to notice where the mistakes happened. And then tomorrow, what could I do differently? Or what could I do in addition? So that that's the daily routine. Marcus Aurelius also mentions in the morning, he says the Pythagoreans would contemplate the sunrise every morning and think of the view from above. They think of the position within the vastness of the universe as a way of kind of preparing their state of mind for the day ahead. So those are some of the, the kind of contemplative practices. I suppose out of all the things that the Stoics do, one of the ones that most resembles meditation is, as many people understand that these are all I would describe as meditations. But uh, the view from above where we would maybe visualize, like, uh, I don't know, have you ever seen Clash of the Titans? No. Or Jason and the Argonauts. All these old, you, there are all these old movies about Greek gods, right? Um, and in them, they often have Zeus on Mount Olympus, and he'll be looking down at humans below, and there'll be like pieces on a chessboard or something, right? So for the Stoics, this mythological idea of the gods looking down from Olympus, they thought we should imagine that we're looking down like from a helicopter or from the top of a mountain and seeing our lives far below us. And that, that's like a visualization technique. You could call it a type of meditation technique. So when Marcus is visualizing the view from above, he's thinking of what the view would be like from the Athenian Acropolis. And the Athenian Acropolis looks down on the Agora, which is the marketplace, the city center, where the law courts were based, where markets were based, where ceremonies were conducted. And also, um, you'd be having this overview and looking down on uh, the place where Socrates was put on trial and executed. Like, so all the drama of ancient philosophy unfolded mm -hmm. down the ground below. The Acropolis is the home of the Parthenon, the temple of the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom. So to look down from, he's talking about looking down from the temple of Athena and seeing the city center of Athens where all of this historic drama unfolds, but viewing it from the perspective of the goddess Athena, um, this kind of divine, very serene, elevated perspective. So he has, I think, quite a literal reference point for this image, but he, he knows exactly what that would look like. Whereas to us, we might think, oh, I can kind of imagine that. I've seen it in movies or something. You know, I can imagine this looking down from a helicopter or something like that. But this is uh, another way that Stoics would meditate. Marcus talks about doing this every day. Imagine if you, every day, you practiced visualizing your life from this elevated perspective. It would become easy after a while. It'd be, it would start to become more and more familiar to you. Uh, I, I think, you know, this is something I've been experimenting with for several decades now. And uh, I think it's changed my character, personally. Mm -hmm. But I think uh -huh. everybody can... Um, well, I think it's made me much um, less... I see things more in context now. And I automatically, without even thinking about it, I find that if something bad happens, rather than thinking, oh my God, this is awful, I'm more likely to think of it in terms of how I'll view it years from now. 
and mm. uh, I'm more likely to view it in terms of a wider perspective. So I lose some money, and I think, well, it doesn't really matter. I'll probably find some money at some point. Like it, you know, like there, these things tend to balance out in the long term. Um, so it's a, it's like in business we do that. If you're a businessman uh, or woman. You, you know, every day when you're doing business, you have good days trading and bad days. Sometimes something bad happens, like a window breaks in your shop and you think, oh, geez, that's expensive. I have to fix it. But then you have a lot of good days when you, you sell more. But a businessman will say, well, what you need to do is look at the bottom line at the end of the month. Right? Don't get too caught up in the individual ups and downs each day. You know, you need to look at your accounts over the lo a longer period of time. And that, that's the reality. And mm. that's a very similar attitude to the Stoics. They say it's the you need to look at the bottom line at the end of the month, or you need to look at the bigger, you know, you need to look at the bigger picture, like uh, your end of year accounts, where, rather than focusing too much uh, on the individual events that befall you. Because what really matters is the the true picture, is the bigger picture. Well, that's very wise, and. Um... Yeah, I think what we all learn from here is that definitely meditation can take many forms and that we can use different kind of techniques. We don't only have to try to, I don't know, like I think this is the most common way people think meditation is that we sit in the floor and try to empty our minds. Not at all. We can also actually direct our minds and make some uh, intelligent analyzing of the mind uh, with meditation. Uh, in the I agree. Morning. Let, let me make an analogy, if you if you don't mind. Uh, I should yeah, say. Yeah, of course, please. Yeah, and also I'm kind of taking this for granted. So modern cognitive therapists, for a while, became very interested in Buddhism and to some extent in yoga, and so they became mindfulness practice became very popular as a research topic in cognitive therapy. But cognitive therapists, so psychologists in general, will do dismantling studies. So they get people, maybe there were people who would sit down cross-legged with sandals on or they'd burn incense, whatever they do, mindfulness of breathing, maybe they chant or whatever. And we could look at how it's benefiting them. But a psychologist naturally would say, well, do you need the incense? Do you need to sit cross-legged? They would say, maybe some of these elements are redundant. Like, so can we find out which, which are the aspects of it that are the active ingredients that, that have the effect? And so dismantling studies have been done on meditation. And what we end up with is the view that it's more, and this wouldn't surprise many meditators, uh, these other elements might have some role, but the key thing is cognitive. Like it's more about your, the key thing is your relationship with your, your thoughts that meditators typically seem to, to benefit from. And uh, like broadening of attention and gaining cognitive distance, these these mechanisms, like these, these strategies seem to be more important. Um, and so the, the Stoics actually have a mindfulness practice um, and they even have a word for it. They call it prosochi, which is the Greek word that means paying attention to something. Now, weirdly in modern Greece, you see this word everywhere. It's on road signs. And if someone has a guard dog, they have a sign with a dog on it, and it says prosoke uh, skilos, like uh, beware of the dog, like pay attention to the dog. But Epictetus uses this word literally just to, to mean mindfulness. He says uh, you should pay attention to your, th your thinking, your faculty of judgment, 
your central executive function, as we might say. Like you should pay attention to what your conscious mind is doing, and particularly the value judgments that you're using, the, the color glasses that you're wearing. Like, so the one difference between stoicism and certain forms of Buddhism or yoga is there is no trace that I can find of any mindfulness of breathing practice in stoicism. So stoics would say mindfulness is absolutely integral, prasoke. Um, throughout the day, but it's mindfulness of your mind that's the key thing. It's mindfulness of how you're using your thoughts more than my, they, they never mention mindfulness of breathing. Now, I think the thing is that many Buddhists or yoga practitioners would think, well, I'm paying attention to my breathing in order to become more aware of my thinking. But not everybody perhaps sees the practice that way. So there's some overlap but also maybe some difference in emphasis between Oriental, Eastern meditation techniques and, and, uh, and Stoic mindfulness practices. You know, so some people might see these as the same, other people might see them as more different, but certainly the, the Stoic mindfulness is more cognitive in nature. Mm, that's super interesting. So now I'm sure that many people are hoping to learn more about Stoicism, hoping to start some sort of practices, integrate the philosophy in their lives. Can you offer or guide us to some of your um, offerings, your courses, books, or what are you working on at the moment, where people can learn and understand more about it? Well, they can find all of this, like I have many courses and I've got a lot of stuff on social media and articles. They can find it all on my website, which is just my name. It's just donaldrobertson.name. N-A-M-E. Um, I've just written a graphic novel about Marcus Aurelius that's coming out in June. I'm working on a biography of Marcus Aurelius that's more academic for Yale University Press that's coming out probably the end of this year, start, probably starting next year actually. But the main thing I'm working on at the moment is a non-profit uh, organization called the Plato's Academy Center, which is based in Athens, in Greece. And the goal of it is to build an international conference center at the original location of Plato's Academy, which is now a public park in Athens, in the center of Athens, called Academia Platanos, where local people walk their dogs and they go into Taekwondo and Tai Chi and stuff, and their kids play, but not many tourists go there. And it's a relatively a poorer neighborhood of Athens. So we wanted to bring foreign investment and revenue to renew this area of Athens and also to make people aware that the ruins of Plato's Academy are still there. And Plato was buried there. Like his tomb was there, but it was destroyed. So his, his remains are probably still under the, in the ground, in the soil there. When you walk in the park, you're walking where Plato and Socrates used to walk um, and where Plato discussed the Republic and the allegory of the cave and uh, you're walking on the ground under which Plato's remains uh, are still perhaps under your, your feet. Cicero went there about 20 years or so after it was destroyed by a Roman dictator called Sulla who was besieging Athens and even then Cicero said it was deserted, uh, it had been looted by a Roman army um, but Cicero says you can read about this stuff in books, but it's also nice to go there and think I'm now walking in the grove as it was at the time. 
where Plato and Socrates actually said these things. The image he said of these great figures from history now comes very vividly to my mind um, because they stood right here where I'm standing now and said these things. And so we'd like uh, people to be able to go there and do philosophy and learn about Plato and Socrates in particular and Greek culture and uh, philosophy in general. And so we're, first of all, building an online community. Our, it's already growing very quickly. Our website is called platosacademy.org. And so people can go there and they can support us. And we hope that we have a virtual conference at the end of May that they can attend with some leading authors and academics talking about Greek philosophy. Um, uh, this payment is by donation. So it's essentially free. You know, you can pay $1 if you want, or, what, or if you want to donate more, that's, a, that's up to you. So people might want to check that out. And uh, yeah, the website and the social media and everything, they can reach by just going to platosacademy.org. Well, thank you so much. That, that was very interesting. And I, I definitely got interested to check that webpage out and see what you're doing there. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy about today's conversation. I was already super excited when um, you agreed on be on this podcast and definitely I've learned a lot and I have this has been more than, uh, like everything I expected and more and towards the end or like as the last question I usually like to like to ask that if now you could go back to speak to your younger self what would be the, like the single most important life advice that you would you would give to yourself knowing what you know now well, I, you know, I luckily, one, I think one of the biggest advantages that I have in life is that I have a daughter. Um, she's 10 years old now. And so in a way, I, don't, I do imagine this a lot, but I don't have to imagine it that much because I've had, I can look at my daughter and I can think it's a challenge for me. I think, what am I going to tell her? Like from when she was very small onwards, I would tell her about Greek philosophy and so I had to think, what, how can I explain this to like a little kid? And then that benefits me as well in just the way that you're describing. So I think I used to say to her, look, the main thing that Socrates gave us, um, his main piece of advice is just that we should ask ourselves what the word wisdom means. We don't do that much today. We should ask ourselves how we define wisdom. Like, what does it mean to be wise? Um, and she said, you know, Daddy, what, what, do, what, what does wisdom mean? Like, and I thought, how would I explain it to a five-year-old kid? And I said, well, I think wisdom uh, means knowing what's the most important things in life and also realizing that some of the things that other people think are important aren't actually as important as they think they are. And I, I think if somebody realizes that, then they've achieved wisdom. But trying to talk about wisdom and trying to figure out what wisdom is, is one of the most therapeutic and beneficial things I think that people can do. And also taking this kind of broader perspective and asking yourself how you, as we mentioned earlier, like if, if I could go back in time, I'd say to my younger self, take the longer view, the bigger view, you know, practice projecting yourself into the future and looking back on events and, uh, when something bad happens, ask yourself, you know, will you still feel the same way about it a year or two years or five years from now? You know, because not only will that make you feel more in control, but it's also going to encourage you to think more about problem solving and coping strategies. 
Thank you for listening to Inkaland podcast today. I'd love to hear what really spoke to you in this episode. So if there is something you want to share, leave a comment on YouTube. You can also let me know if there is a topic you want me to cover in the future. If you enjoyed the episode and think someone else would benefit from it as well, spread the word by sharing it. Looking forward to having you around next time as well. Subscribe to get notified on the next episode. See you next time at the same place. Have a great rest of the week. 